Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Wheatholter, CEO of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. On today's episode, I'm joined by Michael F. Dianaya. Michael works in Atlanta as the head of cyber risk at Expanse. Expanse is one of Forbes' 25 fastest growing venture-backed startups. He leads a team of skilled analysts who reduce the attack surface of large Fortune 500 companies and government agencies. Prior to Expanse, Michael worked for the FBI as a special agent leading extensive investigations and overseeing countless arrests, search warrants, and dismantlement of cyber threat actor sets. He also serves on the board of advisors for an emerging cybersecurity startup, DevCon. Thank you for joining me today, Michael. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So today we're going to talk about cybersecurity, but before we get into that, I'd really love to talk about your experience at the FBI, and I'm sure that's like people just love talking about FBI experience. So was this something that you always wanted to do, or how did you end up there? That's a great question. I do get asked that quite frequently. I just kind of like applied and hired me. I never thought about working there. Just kidding. Uh, Something I always wanted to do. I remember my first exposure to FBI personnel was when I was in high school. I went to, yeah, what was it called? I think it was a, uh, it was like a cafeteria style restaurant. I forgot what it's called. Anyway, hometown buffet. That's what it was. I was at hometown buffet and I'm sitting there and my friends and I had the brilliant idea that we're going to basically stay there lunch to dinner and just pay one time. So this was like our brilliant idea. This was high school. So at the time it was earth shattering. And we made this revolution or revelation there. I was just like, oh my God, we just stay here. We just pay once. And literally it was, it was kind of funny looking back at it. Anyway, uh, so stroll, like in, in walk in a SWAT team. And I didn't know their SWAT at the time. I just knew there were a bunch of guys wearing all black FBI at the time, all black. They now, they no longer do that now, but they walked in wearing all black and it was a SWAT team and they just had FBI on their shirts. And I was just like, oh my God, this was El Paso, Texas. And I was just like, this is amazing. So it was one of the first interactions I had. And at the time, I didn't have the courage to go up to any of the agents and introduce myself or talk to them. My friends and I just gawked uh, in the background. But anyway, so that was my first real exposure to the FBI. Um, and side note, in case you're wondering, we didn't stay till dinner. I had a, I had a orthodontist appointment, so I had to break from our plan. So it was a, my first exposure. Fast forward, I graduated went to go to work in the private sector, didn't really find it as rewarding as I thought it would be, and ultimately wanted to do something that added, created more of an impact and allowed me to really help people. One of my underlying desires is to help people. And so I decided what better way to do it than apply for the FBI. So I did, I was accepted. Um, it was a very intense process through the selection process, probably the most difficult selection process that you can go through. It was one of those things that at the end of the day, when it came out to the other side, it was such a feeling of fulfillment. I felt very rewarded afterwards. And then being in the Bureau was really an amazing experience. I was there for about 14 years total. Um, and I loved every moment of it. Just fascinating some of the work I did and some of the exposures and experiences I was able to have there. Again, couldn't have it anywhere else. So I loved my time there. Was your degree in computer science or cybersecurity or something related? Kind of. So it was in business computer systems, which is akin to MIS or management information systems. So it was like computer science light taught out of the business school. It's very common. And so I had a major there and a major in finance and a minor in communication. And so my first job was as a software developer. I was a programmer. 
So that is really what helped me get into the Bureau was that background in software development. Because at the time, and they still are, looking for people with that background. Yeah, I, rem- I remember that being one of the uh, options and that was the option I crossed out. So uh, so what types of cases did you work while you were with the Bureau? So almost the entire time I worked cyber crime um, or cyber related cases. And by that, I mean principally data breaches, uh, network intrusions, business email compromises, everything that essentially used a computer. Um, I was basically working I tend to work more sophisticated uh, cases. So the more sophisticated data breaches that involved an international nexus, which most of them do, um, but basically the ones that are very difficult to solve, uh, they brought me in to deal with most of those. That was kind of my specialization while I was in Los Angeles where I started. And then I promoted to other positions in the Bureau. I eventually left running a squad out of Atlanta where I live today. And I was managing a group of agents, data scientists, and analysts, basically going after a multitude of various threat actors from nation state actors on the cyber front to criminal actor sets to um, even more advanced, prolific people who were facilitating schemes that I really can't talk about because they were still ongoing. But it was just very interesting. And there's very a lot of complexity associated with these uh, types of cases, more so than other criminal cases, if you think about it. These individuals who are facilitating criminal schemes in the cyber arena tend to be more sophisticated. There's a layer of anonymity associated with using cyber-related techniques that other criminals aren't afforded. So if you think about you go into rob a bank, there's cameras, it's a very low-tech type of crime, versus you go in and take more money, if not 10, 20, 30 times as much through a data breach, uh, much more sophisticated and much harder to identify and track down. But anyway, that was one of the things I specialized in when I was with the FBI. Yeah, that's cool. So do you have a favorite case that you can talk about? Oh man, favorite case, favorite case. Uh, That's an interesting question. I have a number of cases that come to mind. I can tell you like one of my more enlightening moments in my tenure with the Bureau it was my favorite case. It was just one of those more moments that stuck with me. I still remember literally like it was yesterday. Uh, it was a very low tech crime. Basically, the person facilitating, we'll call her Brenda for this interview. She basically was doing check fraud, essentially. What she did is she identified that there was an individual who had a large sum of money that she felt they wouldn't recognize it being stolen, and they didn't for a long period of time. So she took about two to $300,000. All she did was when her husband asked her to deposit a check, she took that check, just simply took the check number or checked the routing number, the account number, and connected her credit card to it. Very simple. And she used it to pay down a lot of credit card debt she had incurred. And that she took about, I think, two to $300,000. Um, the individual who was being victimized is a very wealthy individual and didn't even notice this was missing or happening until his accountant presented this to him. And he's like, oh yeah, it's not me. Fast forward, present it to us. And so this was a very simple case. We went out, talked to her, and it was very fascinating. This really started me really thinking about the mindset of the criminal. But as we're, inter- we're interrogating her in a Starbucks, so it's just, it's, just weird. it's like a surreal scene. We're in a Starbucks, she agreed to meet us there. Um, and we're about 70 or 80 miles outside of Los Angeles. So we're waiting there. She arrives. We're talking with her. She's playing dumb, which I mean, obviously, why would you ever admit to what you're doing? So she's playing dumb as if nothing happened. 
So we're talking to her. She's now starting to identify that we know what she did. We present her with evidence, key findings, facts. Um, using a lot of techniques that I learned and cultivated in the bureau, really connecting with her. Everything's working well. Her husband arrives. And so my partner basically takes him and sits at another table while I continue the interrogation. Now, interrogation, the way it sounds, from her perspective, is more of a conversation. Okay. In reality, I'm implementing a lot of techniques that I'm building rapport and helping her feel more connected with me so she can share. So, but anyway, from her perspective, this is simply a conversation. So eventually her husband gets up, walks over to her and says, hey, I feel like I need to be here. And she looks at her watch and it's around close to three o'clock. She's like, honey, I need you to go pick up the kids. And this is a defining moment in this conversation. And again, like a movie, like it was playing out like a movie. He's like, no, I think I need to be here for this. Like, I really feel like I should be here with you while they're talking to you. And she's like, no, trust me, it's okay. It's just a misunderstanding. I have it under control. So then he reluctantly leaves. And at that moment, she confessed. She just says, okay, here, you're right. I did that. Um, she explained to us that one of her justifications was that she took um, a lot of debt. She had multiple uh, academic degrees. I don't recall if she had a PhD, but I know she had multiple master's degrees, like multiple masters, like two or three of them. I think three. I remember it was overkill. I remember thinking at the time, that's, it seems like you have too many master's degrees. Well, she just had, a, she made bad decisions. She had no criminal history. Um, she was married, two children. They were younger. And at the time I was single, I didn't have any kids. But when I left that interrogation, that interview, I felt like, you know what? She's not a criminal as you traditionally think of the term criminal. I think when we think of cyber criminal or criminal, we're thinking of someone who's in a dark lit or dimly lit room with a hoodie uh, or in their parents' basement, which side note, I actually did identify a hacker in his parents' basement. It's another story. But um, she wasn't that. She was prototypical, or she wasn't prototypical. She was atypical. However, she started me thinking about the criminal mind, and it started me realizing. It took me down a path of really uncovering. It's not so much that you're born with a predisposition. There is that element, but the vast majority of individuals I interrogated and interviewed, they weren't born with a predisposition. They made bad decisions, and there was a lot of context that surrounded their decisions. And it really started me thinking about how important context is to understanding why we do what we do. So anyway, so this wasn't the most interesting case, but it started me down this path. And because of it, I created a sort of thought process I, I termed the red light paradox. How do you define this paradox? So I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so the red light paradox, basically, um, the best way to frame it is ask, is ask you like, so Leah, would you rent a red light? You want me to answer? No. <laughs> yes, I do, actually. <laughs> it depends. That's a great answer. There is a high probability you intrinsically were leaning toward no, is my assumption. Because you were, you're, in theory, most of us recognize a light, having a, having a traffic light is for a reason, or we're sitting at an intersection. There's a high probability you're thinking about it in, in terms of a daylight situation or daytime event, where you're sitting at a red light, three in the afternoon, you're like, okay, yeah, you know, I should probably sit here because it makes sense logically. But if you change the context, if I asked you, would you run red light at 3 a.m. in the morning, all of a sudden everything changes. And so where in one environment you wouldn't do it, in the second environment you would do it. Because at some point at 3 a.m. you're like, okay, well, I'm sitting here. Um, I don't see any cars. I feel like I'm kind of, I'm actually, I should be given a ticket for just being so dumb to sit here. So you're like, I'm running this red light. 
So that's the red light paradox in a nutshell. It simply is just looking at a situation where normally you would say, I would never do that. You change the context and now you're faced with the same situation, but through a different lens. And now you're like, well, you know what? I think I will do it now. We, if you think about this now, Leo, you don't have to answer this one, but there's a high probability you and others have done things that they were wrong. And we think about it, when you do it the first time, you feel really guilt. But you do it the second, third, fourth, a hundred times later, a hundred times later, all of a sudden that guilt is no longer at play. Um, it's because it becomes more normalized. And so that's kind of where it also becomes that concept of, or it gets back to that concept of context. So if you run a red light, go back to that one, you run a red light habitually over and over and over again. At some point, you're going to be like immune to it. It's not going to mean anything to you. A lot of people who I interrogated fell into this paradigm. They did it once. They felt tremendous guilt. They did it the second, third, fourth. You know, by the hundredth time, that guilt was eroded. They've already justified their actions. And contextually, they played it out in their mind where it was warranted. And they continued to do it. That was the vast majority of criminals I interviewed and interrogated fell into that type of thinking where it was very contextual more nuanced. And it's not something most people think about. Most people think it's very clear, black and white. Unfortunately, it really isn't when you deal with criminality. Yeah. So we we talk about that a lot in the CFE, you know, fraud space for sure, that so many white collar criminals, it's their first offense. Did you find that in the cyber world as well? Yes. And it's funny you say that because I'm willing to bet they're what in law enforcement circles call low hanging fruit. So the ones that's your first offense, you make the most mistakes. If you think about it, if I were to ask you to bake, uh, I don't know, a lemon tart, and you've never done before, you probably aren't going to do a great job of it. Uh, same thing with criminal, the criminality. If I were to tell you break a law or do something illegal, you're probably not going to be great at it the first time. However, if you've done it several times, a hundred times later, and no one's caught you, you're probably caught in pretty good your craft. So much harder to catch those individuals. But a lot of times I did interact with people who were probably deemed low-hanging fruit and that were easier to catch. The more sophisticated, the more um, hardened criminals and the people who really thought through their craft, much, much harder to find. So having worked uh, financial crimes for the majority of my career, I have like this go-to list of how certain businesses, you know, organizations can protect their business from embezzlement, let's say. And, you know, there's a whole host of financial crimes, but like embezzlement is the most common that we work like as a private firm, just for our firm specifically. And even whenever I think back to the Bureau, like those were the most common crimes that came in. You know, we didn't have a lot of pump and dump schemes or mortgage frauds. I mean, we had those too, but embezzlements were just so common. We'll be right back to this interview. Hey guys, what's up? It's Matt Christensen and Lindsay Ivy from Cybercraft. We're honored to be here and on your show. Lindsay, say hi. Hey, how's everyone doing? <laughs> Lindsay's the brains behind all this. We got together two communities, the cybersecurity and the anti-fraud community and said, let's put together one event and bring these two groups together that are fighting a shared adversary. And that is people who steal money or data or both. It's October 1st and 2nd. Registration is completely free. Go to cybercraftsummit.com. You'll be able to register for free and attend as many courses as you can day and night for those two days. And you're gonna be able to earn up to 19 CPE credits for free. Our keynotes are amazing. They're Forbes Tech Council speakers. They're leaders in this space. We even have the man who busted Bernie Madoff 
Many of your listeners will know that as Frank Casey. Please join us October 1st and 2nd, cybercraftsummit.com. We hope to see you there. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to the podcast. What were the most common types of cyber cases that you worked at the Bureau or that you saw at the Bureau and then even now in your current job? So it really comes down to the big three. Um, The big three cyber cases that really affect people at large are going to be one data breach. So data breach is one most people think about when they think of cyber. This is where someone comes in without authorization into a protected network and takes something of value. That's essentially what data breach is. Um, That's a vast majority of what people perceive to be the most prolific type of crime. It actually isn't. The most prolific type of crime is business email compromise. The volume is just so high because it's so easy to do. But business email compromises, and many of your listeners are probably aware of it, but for those of you who might not be, I'll kind of explain it. Basically, it's just social engineering. It's a situation where we'll say I take on a, we'll say a situation comes up where like, Leah, I'm going to pay you um, a certain amount of money for services rendered. And so another element comes in, we'll say the criminal, and they identify what's happening. And we'll say they make a compromise, a small compromise, where they're either going to take either a breach upon your email server or my email server. Now, you don't even need to do that. We'll say um, another technique. We'll say I'm starting off my business and it's very successful and I'm boastful, which a lot of startups are. And we're going to announce to the world, hey, we've just received $400 million of funding. If you think about what that is, it's really just telling everyone around you in a public setting, I got lots of money in my pocket. So anyone wants to steal it, it's in my pocket. And so that's why a lot of startups, when they make those announcements, they need to be aware that by doing that, you also tell the criminals, I have lots of money. So either way, at some point, someone identifies there's valuable information being exchanged between you and I. What they'll do is either through a direct breach or just trying to social engineer one of us, they'll try to intercept that communication. And we'll say in this example, Leah, I'm going to pay you $100,000 for services rendered they see that they try to make the intercept and they act as me when they're not me. And so they'll tell you, Hey Leah, um, it's Michael. I changed my bank account. It's not the one you used to paint. It's this other one. So that's business email compromise. And now you in this situation, unassumingly are like, Oh sure, Michael. And you just redirect funds. Um, that was the most common crime that is being facilitated. And the one that is the more prolific because it's so easy to do. And there's so many different variants of it. The other one is ransomware. So ransomware is whereby somebody comes in, they infiltrate a computer, principally, or a network, and they encrypt key components in that network, principally data. And that encryption prevents you from basically doing anything operating. Uh, it could encrypt your customer database. It could encrypt, uh, like for you as, a, as an individual, your pictures, whatever you deem valuable. So it is impossible for all intents and purposes for you to unlock it without the decryption key. Uh, So in order to basically get the decryption key, they then proposition you for a proposal, pay us money, and then we'll decrypt the information we encrypted. So that's ransomware. So those are the big three uh, cyber crimes that I dealt with when I was with the FBI and that are still extremely popular today. And my company, the one I'm currently with, we really help mitigate uh, people for data breaches. We help identify their asset inventory, identify where all their assets are. And I can kind of dig, dig in that deeper a little bit later if you like sort of explain to you specifically what we do and why that is so important. Into that, I'm curious, what's your kind of go-to list to help people 
prevent or at least reduce their risk of these types of crimes? Uh, that's a, it depends, right? Uh, depending on what the crime is, each are a little different. You know, kind of like a generic um, list I have, I can kind of enumerate to you. So one leads into sort of uh, what my company does, but it's key for us to do, and even as individuals, but keep um, track of inventory, hardware, software that is on your company network. So you have to keep track of that or in your personal connections. Like if, if you're a solopreneur, someone who operates their own business, and you're like, I don't really need to worry about cybersecurity, I got one, one laptop and that's all I have. Um, there's high probability you actually have a lot more assets. So I had some conversations with individuals who feel this way. And then I started digging deeper. I go, where do you store your data? Like, well, technically I have this external hard drive. And then I store it in the cloud. Where's the cloud? Like, I don't know, uh, Google or AWS. And doesn't they don't really quite know. And I ask them, where's that stored? They have no idea, right? Um, then I dig deeper. What well, do you have a website? Well, yeah, I have a website too. Do you have data there? Yes, I have data there. Do you have a point of sale system? And if they do, there's more data there. So you start digging deeper, there's a lot of data. So track that data is what's key. Develop a process for software install installation for yourself or end users that are gonna be part of your company. The other thing is patch all applications right away and do it on a regular basis. So whether you're again, solopreneur or you have a team of people, you wanna patch all applications. One of the big components here, candidly across the board is educate uh, and practicing kind of good cyber behavior including password management, identifying potential phishing efforts, um, tracking devices that connect to your network. So just really good cyber hygiene. That is really quite pivotal. Something else to do is constantly backup data. This really helps for ransomware attacks uh, and keep multiple copies of that data you back up. You want to make sure you test that theory because sometimes I've come to situations where Companies or individuals feel like they have a backup in play, but they realize, well, they stopped backing it up because there was some sort of problem that occurred, or when they look at the backups, it was uh, corrupted because they're not actively checking it. So it's one of those things you can't just put in play and forget it. You have to sort of keep accounting or keep an audit trail of that to make sure to do some checks. So wait, hold on, is that backup still work? Let's, let's bring that system back online to make sure everything's functioning as designed. So you want to make sure you check that. Some other basic components create complex passwords. And I say passwords, probably like passphrases. In theory, um, credential theft is extremely popular, but in theory, in the future, I think there's more of a thought process moving away from password management. So that'll be something that'll be coming down in the future. But right now, having complex passphrases is key. And the part of the final thing I'll mention is you want to try to limit the number of administrative privileges, even if it's just your laptop. Uh, but definitely want to limit the number of administrative accounts you have on your network or your company infrastructure. Basically what that does, it allows someone with administrative rights to do a lot. And if I'm a hacker or somebody who has unauthorized access, if I gain access to administrative rights, I just really have the keys to the kingdom. So you really want to limit that because you don't want to have multiple people with that access. So if you only have a finite number, it's easier to maintain and track. So in case something is out of hand or someone does compromise it, or compromise your user, they don't compromise that administrator and they don't compromise that privilege. Or if they replicate it and you only have a finite number, you're like, well, hold on, we only have two administrator accounts. Why do we have another one in the system? There shouldn't be three, there should be only two. Again, indicators, but if you have everyone with have a multitude of accounts and you're not tracking any of it, it's almost impossible to discern somebody on your network that shouldn't be there. That's a great list. And you know, even though we're talking about like data and technology and protecting those things, I mean, there's a lot of similarities between your list 
and even like a fraud risk assessment because your employees are often the weakest link in these things. So if they have administrator passwords, you know, I read a story not like a couple years ago that has stuck with me about, you know, people, social engineering bank employees to give them social security numbers and things like that. Like this bank could have had all types of controls on different things, but an employee with that access was able to, you know, compromise things for the entire bank. And so the education that you talked about and then limiting access, I mean, all great tips, really great. So since leaving the FBI and now working at Expanse, what's your current focus? And then like, how does Expanse serve its customers? My focus is I run a team of very sophisticated analysts. And what we do is we help pull apart data that we're given by other elements of Expanse to help identify vulnerabilities within a company's network. That's what my team does. To go back a little bit, take a more macro perspective of what Expanse does, Expanse basically helps reduce a company's attack surface. And by they do that by identifying all assets that that company might have. So you think about a small operation, they don't have a lot of assets. So most of our companies are government or large corporations. So let's um, look at a hypothetical. So let's look at um, Best Buy. So Best Buy is not a customer of Expanse, but at Best Buy were, if you think about Best Buy, there's a massive number of, of assets they have across the globe. Computers, multiple systems, sitting in the cloud, sitting in, on-prem, just a multitude of assets. They've made a various number of acquisitions over the years. So there's a high probability, it's very, very difficult for Best Buy to keep track of all that. And I know that because I know a former colleague of mine used to work for Best Buy. And he shared with me some of the trials and tribulations they had. But that is very, very onerous for a company to do, to know all of their assets. As each, as I think of a company, how complex they can get. You have different business units that are doing their own thing, that are basically spinning up instances in the cloud, that are basically marketing wants to create some new, buy new domains and to market a, set, a specific campaign. So to track all of that becomes extremely complex and cumbersome for companies and most don't do it well. What Expanse does, we specialize in that. So as, as uh, that network grows and continues to expand, Expanse tracks all of it as it grows. And so even when the IT team doesn't know about it, Expanse knows. And so then we can come back on a regular basis and let the people who uh, we interact with say, hey, here's your new asset inventory as it has changed and evolved. That's our specialization. Gosh, I remember whenever I first started my practice, I had, I don't know, six or seven employees. I mean, and this was in the first year of business or something. And I remember that one guy, he was an intern and he left. And so I was getting his computer to give it to our IT consultant. And uh, I noticed that he had like downloaded all kinds of stuff on his computer. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, and, and my background being from the Bureau, I mean, everything was like locked down all the time, right? And you had to lock your computer whenever you walked away from it. There were just different things. And that's when I really started realizing like, oh, I need controls on like what my employees are doing. But then also like what you're saying, tracking, like if somebody says, hey, Leah, we need a flowchart program. Can I, you know, I've researched this. Can I buy this? And I just say, oh yeah, sure. But then that's another like software. And now information is being stored in this flowchart software and just keeping track of that even for our small shop is so much so that's a really cool service that y'all provide i want to switch gears just towards the uh, end of our 
time here, and uh, you've traveled and spoken on cybersecurity topics. And I'm curious, what are what are some of your favorite topics to speak about? Oh, that's a good one. It's funny because you said I used to just do so many more speaking because I miss it. I miss being on stage. If anyone listening is interested in seeing me, check out my YouTube channel. Just type in my name, Michael FD. Now there's one event I have recorded. And so just, and Leo, you know this, in the Bureau, they don't really allow you to record your presentations, but I give about 500. They're all or more. Uh, they're all within the Bureau. So like almost none of them are recorded. So I have one actually, it was post Bureau that recorded so people can see me on stage, but I love it. So I missed traveling and actually giving a lot of conversations with people or presentations and having conversations after the presentation. Um, but topics I like talking about, cybersecurity, clearly, uh, <laughs> is one of my key ones. The criminal mind. Um, you know, I've really started doing a little bit more work in that arena, trying to really piece together. I have a presentation where I talk about the four key observations I've made. I'm also starting to get more relevant content, uh, a video I'm about to launch is about talking about TikTok and my thoughts on TikTok, specifically its connections with the Chinese government and what that means. And I think that most people who are in the US don't quite understand what that actually implies. And so I take time to explain it. So that's something I like chatting about. It's so like relevant information. Um, so those are just some things, the big three, uh, talking about explaining to people, you know, data breaches, walking them through the intrusion life cycle, what that looks like help them understand vulnerabilities that exist. There's an exercise I really like to do where I'll take a team of individuals and show them a series of homes and ask them to like be a burglar with me. And so we collectively work together and we act as if we're burglars and break it into these like four distinct homes. And I take that, we, so it's actually a really fun exercise, but those of you listening here like have their homes broken into, it can be kind of sensitive. You're like, oh God, I had that happen to me. Um, but generally speaking, People who participate in this uh, activity really enjoy it. And, but it gets them the right mindset because essentially a hacker is going to take that same perspective, but on your network or on your computer. Uh, it's just very, it's a digital world versus the physical world. But the same process goes into play. So walking them through that process, because at the end of that conversation, I then transition to network security and draw that comparison between breaking into a home, it's akin to breaking into a network. Anyway, I can go on and on. Uh, by the way, Leah. So I'll stop there, but let's give you some ideas of things I like to chat about. Okay. So you did mention your YouTube channel and we'll put it in the show notes, but this TikTok video, like I'm subscribed to your channel. Are you going to put this out on your channel? The TikTok? Oh, oh yes. I'm the final edits are taking place. I think today I have my video guy tweaking some things. By the time this show airs, it should be available. And then you can watch. It's really interesting. I love to get people's feedback on it. Because I do present something that, again, Leo, when you see it, you'll be like, okay, yeah, I, I, I get it. But I bet the vast majority of people don't quite understand uh, that connection with the Chinese government and what that could mean to the data that we're providing. Anyway. Time to like jump off into this deep end. But we actually at our office have had, commun uh, have had conversations about TikTok and concerns and just different things with that. And then we also just seem to notice whenever things are connected with China, like that seems to be a common topic that pops up here too. So I'm, whenever I see that video go live, I'm going to share it around the office. Um, An idea for you, Leah, uh, but it's literally, because the video is about 14 minutes long, but to literally just play it and then have a conversation afterwards and just discussion, because it'd be a, a good point for people to be like, well, what are your thoughts? And just literally have a discussion about it and to help 
and sort of have people share thoughts and feelings and like, oh, I don't like that. I agree with that. Or that's something that's interesting. Or I don't think that's a concern of mine. Anyway, I think there's a lot of opportunities there. Yeah. Okay. We're going to do that. I'm going to schedule that in because uh, that really has come up lately. So, okay. You and I were both invited to speak at the Cybercraft Summit and we'll put a link to the registration in the show notes as well. But this is a free CPE training event focused on Cybercraft security and anti-fraud I'll be presenting our newest investigation game called The Case of the Cash Flow Fiasco. It's, it's going to be so fun. Um, but I'm curious as to your session, what is your presentation topic and uh, what are you wanting, you know, our, our list, hopefully all of our listeners participate in this because it's free. Uh, but what are you going to be talking about in your session? So I want to be just talking about the criminal mind. So this one is going to talk about those four key observations I mentioned before. Um, except I'll dive into them. And so what I shared with you and your listeners, uh, kind of like a preview, it'll be a full blown out discussion about these four key observations I made throughout my time and tenure, working my own cases, working other people's cases, and just sharing that with everyone. So I'm excited to sort of, again, hear if people have questions and concerns. I'm definitely open for, I'd love to get reactions from this stuff. That's honestly my favorite thing to do after presentations or events is to hear how people heard what I said and then have a discussion. But anyway, that's what I'll be chatting about. Great. Hopefully we're not scheduled at the same time so that I can participate in your session too. Well, well, thank you so much for your time today, Michael. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I'm looking forward to your session at the summit. And if our listeners are looking to connect, what is the best way to do so? Um, so, so the best way to connect with me is LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, uh, just, you know, you can send it. I should note it, I think, uh, my link to LinkedIn. And then also, if you want to, like, just sort of watch some of the content I've created, I'm starting to use YouTube as my platform to share information. Um, lots of topics on, um, like, TikTok, but I talk about empowering your workforce and some of the complications there are with that. So a lot of different things. So find me on YouTube. Well, thank you again, Michael. It was great talking to you and hopefully we'll talk again soon. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time and thank your listeners for uh, checking us out. I appreciate it. The Investigation Game Podcast is a production of Workman Forensics. For more information about the topics we discuss on each episode, please visit workmanforensics.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also connect with us on any of the social media platforms by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas for the podcast, please email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com.